Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and I'm glad to welcome all of you here for what I think will be a very interesting discussion of uh, a new book today. There's lots of debate about the best arguments for freedom and capitalism. Ayn Rand insisted that you could only arrive at libertarian conclusions on the basis of her metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Locke and Spencer helped to outline a rigorous and consistent theory of natural rights. Hume, Acton, and Hayek instead would direct our attention to the historical processes by which liberty was achieved in the West. Milton Friedman would offer a consequentialist case. People will enjoy more peace and prosperity if markets are allowed to work. So it's interesting to see that our speaker today, Michael Shermer, has titled today's talk The Case for Capitalism from an Evolutionary Perspective, a new way of arriving at perhaps a similar conclusion. And I think the more different lines of argument point in the same direction, the more confident we can be that that's the right conclusion. Dr. Michael Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine and the executive director of the Skeptics Society. He's also a monthly columnist for Scientific American. He is the author of many books on science and the science of thinking. I don't see how you can publish a magazine and be executive director of an organization and write this many books. And yet I've read some of them and... um, I know that he's not skimping on the time he spends there. His last book, which he also presented at the Cato Institute, was called Why Darwin Matters, Evolution and the Case Against Intelligent Design. He's also the author of Science Friction, where the known meets the unknown about how the mind works and how thinking goes wrong. His book, The Science of Good and Evil, Why People Cheat, Gossip, Share Cars, and Follow the Golden Rule, is on the evolutionary origins of morality and how to be good without religious faith. He also wrote The Borderlands of Science, about the fuzzy land between science and pseudoscience, and Denying History on Holocaust Denial and Other Forms of Pseudo-History. His book, How We Believe, presents, presents his theory on the origins of religion and why people believe in God. And he's also the author of Why People Believe Weird Things, which must do very well during presidential election years. (laughs) Dr. Shermer received a Ph.D. in the history of science from Claremont Graduate School, where he is now an adjunct professor of economics. In his new book, The Mind of the Market, he looks at evolution and economics. How did we make the leap from ancient hunter-gatherers to modern consumers and traders? Is the capitalist marketplace a sort of Darwinian organism evolved through natural selection as the fittest way to satisfy our needs. Drawing on the fields of neuroeconomics, psychology, biology, and other sciences, he looks at the economic roots, the evolutionary roots of modern economics. Please welcome the author of The Mind of the Market, Compassionate Apes, Competitive Humans, and Other Tales from Evolutionary Economics, Dr. Michael Shermer. Uh, thank you, David. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back in uh, friendly waters here amongst my fellow libertarians. And uh, I'm on a book tour, so this is my first week of three weeks of book touring. And already it's rough. You know how it is when you're sleeping in a different hotel every night and you wake up with the aches and pains. And, you know, you get that, like, kink in your neck and you have to sort of, you know, like, take it out yourself. It's like, I'll show you, I'll show you an example. Just hang on for a second here. Uh, 
Oh, okay. Much better. That's much better. I think we can continue now. I'll show you how to do that later <laughs> in the Q&A. <laughs> My headache's gone. <laughs> so uh, I am the publisher of Skeptic Magazine. It's the quarterly publication of the Society. It looks like this. We investigate claims of the paranormal, pseudoscience, fringe groups and cults, and claims of all kinds between science, non-science, voodoo science, junk science, bad science, pathological science, non-science, and plain old nonsense. And unless you've been on abducted by aliens and been on Mars for the last couple of decades, you know there's a lot of it out there, nonsense that is, and it's our job to sort of engage those people in claims to see if they have any substance to them. One of our recent issues, for example, is on 9-11 conspiracy theories. That is, uh, was there a conspiracy, a 9-11 conspiracy? Of course there was. Al-Qaeda is a conspiracy by definition, but the so-called 9-11 truthers don't accept that. Uh, explanation. They have their own conspiracy theory that it was the Bush administration that orchestrated 9-11 with hundreds or thousands of operatives out there planting bombs inside the uh, World Trade Center buildings, operating the planes with remote controls from local buildings, uh, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And these are the same people, by the way, who believe that Bush is the worst president and the dumbest president we've ever had in the history of civilization, and yet somehow he managed to pull off the most elaborate, intelligent, conspiracy in the history of civilization. And uh, that's something of the uh, dilemma they have there. Not one of these bomb planters or conspirators uh, has wanted to go on Larry King to tell about what they did and what they knew. You know, I mean, this, is, this alone tells us that it wasn't an inside job. But that's the kind of claim that we you know, try to sink our teeth into. Our next issue is on global warming. And so I got a I got a global warming skeptic and a global warming believer, or whatever the opposite of a skeptic would be, I guess, sort of a, like a left-wing scientist and a right-wing scientist and a scientist with no wings at all and, and uh, to try to have a balance there. So um, uh, the mind of the market is uh, uh, sort of an extrapolation of what I've, I've already been doing. We study human irrationalities in various aspects of life. So if you stop and think about it for just a moment, you realize there's no reason why people would be irrational and in all other aspects of life, and then suddenly when they walk into a supermarket or they make an investment in the stock market, they become rational calculators who don't make emotional investments or something like that. Uh, Obviously, that's not true. And so my book is the first to integrate three new sciences, behavioral economics, neuroeconomics, and evolutionary economics uh, on two levels. One is a descriptive level in which I'm describing how people actually do behave in the marketplace. So one of the revolutionary transitions in in the field of economics in the last 20 years is that it's not being done by economists anymore, but by experimental psychologists. That is, the two leaders in this new field, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, uh, Kahneman who won the Nobel Prize in economics. Tversky would have, but he he died early. Um, they, uh, They never had a single class in economics. They were just professional scientists know that know how to run experiments. And so instead of Uh, mathematically predicting how people should behave, you actually put people in real circumstances and you watch what they actually do. And these being real people in the real world, not just white rats in labs and and, uh, and intro 18-year-old psych students. Um, And so the field has gone uh, far beyond um, uh, what economics has traditionally been. So that's what kind of makes it exciting, I think. And uh, since this is a, a reading of sorts, I'll, I thought I should do a little bit of reading. And so I'll read a, little, a, a few passages and then talk a little bit more, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll do some Q&A. So um, 
the second on the second level, so the part is descriptive, and the other part is prescriptive. That is, given what we know about human nature, about our evolutionary past, our behavioral uh, quirkiness and irrationalities, how should we structure society to best enable the spread of peace, prosperity, and freedom, and so forth, and liberty? Uh, what are what are the right circumstances uh, that we should try to enable? And uh, so, to that extent, I, I begin with the mind of the market as a double entendre. That is, uh, I think the market has a mind of its own. That's one way to use it. It's a bottom-up, self-organized system uh, that operates without top-down intelligent design, if you will. And, uh, but also how the mind itself operates in market. So I'm using the mind of the market in a double way there. So in the first way, the, the market has a mind of its own. I start with chapter one called The Great Leap Forward, somewhat with tongue-in-cheek uh, to uh, Mr. Mao, uh, with the problem that I'm trying to solve in, in the book. Um, living along the Orinoco River that borders Brazil and Venezuela are the Yanomamo people, hunter-gatherers whose average annual income has been estimated at the equivalent of about $100 per person per year. If you walked into a Yanomamo village and counted up the stone tools and baskets, arrow points and arrow shafts, bows, cotton yarn, cotton and vine hammocks, clay pots, assorted other tools, various medicinal remedies, pets, food products, articles of clothing and the like, you would end up with a figure of around 300. Before 10,000 years ago, this was the approximate material wealth of every village on the planet. If our, if our species is about 100,000 years old, that 90% of our history has been spent in this state of relative economic simplicity. Uh, I'm taking 100,000 years as the uh, lower limit of the estimate of the last uh, bottleneck migration out of Africa, somewhere between 100 and 160,000 years ago, from which we all come today. Living along the Hudson River that borders New York and New Jersey are the Manhattan people, Consumer traders whose average annual income has been estimated at $40,000 per person per year. If you walked into the Yanomamo village, I mean, sorry, the Manhattan village, and counted up all the different products available at retail stores and restaurants, factory outlets, and superstores, you'd end up with a figure of around $10 billion, uh, as estimated by uh, stock-keeping units, SKUs, that retail measure by the barcodes, which has now exceeded $10 billion, and they've just added... Uh, uh, some more bars to make it uh, 100 billion, and then ultimately it'll be, a, it'll be a trillion. So this difference of 400 times in income and 33 million times in produ uh, products almost beggars description. If ever there was a great leap forward, this was it, comparable to the evolution of bipedalism, the big brain and consciousness, equivalent to the invention of fire, the printing press, and the Internet, and on par with the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and the digital revolution. <coughs> And this great leap forward did not happen gradually. It's been estimated that the $100 per person per year uh, didn't rise to 150 per person per year until 1000 B.C., about the time of the end of the Bronze Age and the, the, the time of King David. It did not exceed $200 per person per year until after 1750 and the onset in the Industrial Revolution. In other words, it took 97,000 years to go from 100 to 150 bucks a person a year then another 2,750 years to get to $200 per person per year, and finally 250 years to ascend to today's level of $6,600 per person per year for the entire planet. And as we just saw, an order of magnitude more uh, for the wealthiest people in the richest nations. 
So if we compress that 100,000-year period into just one year, then the last 250-year period of relative prosperity would represent less than one day out of the year. Or if we condense the 100 millennium into a 24-hour day, our epoch of industrial production and market economies accounts for a mere 3.6 minutes. In other words, the age in which we live and take for granted is normal, and the way things have always been, in fact, constitutes a mere one-quarter of one percent of human history. The question is, how in the world did this ever happen? That's a weird thing to have happen. How can that happen? So that's the answer I'm trying to provide in the book. That's the, I mean, the problem I'm trying to solve. I begin with complexity theory. That is, the market and economies are self-organized, emergent properties that come out of simpler systems without any top-down design. We already have much familiarity with complex systems. Life itself appears to have uh, originated wherever in the prebiotic soup, in the surface of the ocean, the deep part of the ocean, perhaps even in, in rocks. Uh, but with just putting energy into the system, um, um, chemicals begin to form more complex bonds and chains. They begin to formulate into crude cells with cell, cellular walls and so on. Complex life itself, cells themselves, for example, the cells that we're made out of, eukaryotic cells, which contain little organelles that you might remember from high school biology that have all these peculiar names. Um, but if you take one like mitochondria and, and remember that mitochondrial DNA is how we trace our genetic lineage through our, our mother's line, why would mitochondria have DNA? Our cells already have DNA in their nucleus. Uh, Lynn Margulis's answer to this question, which I think is correct, is that um, our modern complex cells are composed of these, a conglomeration of these simpler prokaryotic cells that themselves have DNA in them. So sometime uh, between 4 billion and about 3.5 billion years ago, these simpler cells began to coalesce into larger complex cells. That's a form of self-organized emergent property uh, without any top-down design. Just put energy into the system, it naturally happens. A multicellular life, the immune system, consciousness is probably best explained as a self-organized emergent property of 100 billion neurons firing in patterns emerges out of this, what we're doing now, whatever it is we're doing. Thinking, talking, we're aware. I'm aware that you're aware. I know that you know that I know that, and all that, that good theory of mind stuff. That, that has no reductionistic explanation at the moment, and probably never will. That is, you have to take it from the bottom up and build, uh, not from the top down. Language is a self-organized, emergent, complex system. Nobody designed English 500 years ago to sound like it does now, or where I'm from in Southern California, where they use the word like every three words. Uh, you couldn't design that. And the legal system, the law system, is a self-organized, emergent property, and the economy is. So what I'm trying to do is say uh, that uh, uh, the notion of free market economics is, is, is one we're already familiar with if we can hook it to things we already know about. So um, I'm trying to convince my conservative friends that evolution, which they tend to be skeptical of, is just like that market economy stuff you already understand and like and accept. And to my liberal friends who completely accept evolution, you know that free market economy stuff you're skeptical of? Look, it's just like the evolution stuff you fully accept. And, you know, the parallels are not perfect, but they're close enough. And uh, in fact, in, in uh, The Mind of the Market, I have a whole chapter on Darwin and Adam Smith. These are the two most famous metaphors in all of Western culture, the invisible hand and natural selection. 
Uh, and they are just metaphors that can be misleading. Uh, natural selection, nobody's selecting anything. Uh, it's just whether organisms survive long enough for their genes to make it into the next generation, however they might do that, whatever fittest means. And so uh, polar bears, which are the subject of much angst over global warming and so on, uh, they're not evolving to become marine mammals or something. They're not becoming anything other than they might become extinct. They're just well adapted to do exactly what they do. So there's nobody out there in the design space future of life selecting organisms to drive toward a certain direction. Inevitably, though, because our minds are designed, evolved uh, the way uh, they are, we just tend to think of it that way. And, uh, and the same thing with the invisible hand. There's no hand directing down, even though the metaphor makes us think of that. And because our, our vast experience with design things are us designing them, we tend to think that complex objects must be designed from the top down by an intelligent being. Uh, in fact, it, it, what Smith meant was simply that... Uh, as you already know, since uh, you're familiar with this subject, that, that, that just uh, people running around trying to make a living, just like organisms running around trying to make a living, and all of us just trying to get our genes in the next generation, emerges out of that, this complexity, without any need for a top-down design. Now, of course, the analogy is not perfect. Uh, uh, markets have to be situated in something, some kind of political system, uh, a country, a nation of some kind with laws and whatnot. So it, it's not completely designless like life, but nevertheless, the uh, the analogy is close enough. So um, I think one of the reasons I have a chapter called uh, Folk Economics in the Mind of the Market, in which I address this problem, why don't people accept free market economics? And the answer is for the same reason a lot of people have a hard time with evolution. Uh, our brains are not well equipped to understand intuitively these kinds of complex long-term systems that change over time. Uh, we evolved in what Richard Dawkins calls a uh, uh, middle world, or what I slightly prefer for literative purposes, middle land. That is, in the Paleolithic environment on the plains of Africa where we evolved, uh, objects were of a middling size, sort of between ants and mountain ranges. And that's what our brains are used to looking at and, and, and intuitively comfortable with, just sort of middling size objects running around at a middling speed that you can see. And... Uh, and we only live a few, uh, a few years to a few decades, so our, our concept of time is relatively short between now, which is about three seconds long now, uh, and, and up to a few uh, decades long. That's it. So the idea of thousands of years of global climate change is counterintuitive. What do you mean global warming? It was cold the other day. Uh, and that's a typical response you get simply because anecdotally, we're used to thinking anecdotally. What single data points instead of long-term trends, uh, are what we notice the most. And, and that's because that's how our brains were designed in this middle land. And in this middle land of our paleolithic environment, in which we evolved in these small groups of a couple dozen to a couple hundred people, uh, there were no market capital forces. There was no accumulation of wealth. There was no disparity between rich and poor. These are largely egalitarian Communities. So the idea that there can be an invisible hand, there can be market forces, there can be a division of labor, and all the stuff that Smith writes about in The Wealth of Nations, none of that existed in our 99% of our history. So there's nothing in our brains that help us Im immediately, intuitively, deeply grasp that. It requires effort on the part of teachers to teach evolution because it doesn't come naturally and, uh, and economists to teach how this, this works. Otherwise, people will naturally... Reject it, and so that goes a long way to explaining. I think the the resentment of wealth that, that a lot of people have, the mistrust of corporations and and CEOs, a reminder that 
editorial cartoon in the New Yorker of the two characters in the cocktail party, and the one says to the other one, uh, I hated Bill Gates before it was so fashionable. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because we, 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 a lot of people think like that, but why should they think like that? And uh, one reason, I think, is because not only that, that intuitive, uh, a second reason would be that um, most people equate evolution and free market uh, economics w- with a um, w- with sort of a, a view of human nature that's uh, that we're uh, cutthroat, selfish, greedy, uh, and uh, in Tennyson's uh, memorable f- phrase describing nature, red in tooth and claw, um, Herbert Spencer's uh, description of evolution as survival of the fittest. Unfortunately, those guys, Huxley and Spencer, they won that early battle. Shortly after Darwin published The Origin of Species, it was a, a, a great debate about whether natural selection just selected against and was weeding out, uh, destroying, you know, killing, extinction, and so on, whether that was the major thing, or whether natural selection was a creative force, creating, designing, and so on. Well, it's obviously it's both, but uh, Huxley and Spencer sort of won that battle over people like Peter Kropotkin, who wrote a book called Mutual Aid, in which he said, well, no, wait, most of the organisms I see in his native Russia were social animals who were pretty pro-social and cooperative, or else they wouldn't have been able to survive. So uh, now this may be, there's an interesting sort of side thing on how science is done, and it's, it could be that because Kropotkin was in a different political environment than, say, the much more competitive and capitalistic England, maybe the view of nature as competitive and, and, and greedy versus cooperative and pro-social is in part influenced by the culture in which you're doing your science. But nevertheless, I think we can still get at the real answer. Uh, and the real answer is that, of course, most social animals are most of the time pro-social and so on, and that if, if we equated um, evolution just as a cutthroat thing, I can see why people are uncomfortable with it. You'll often hear, especially right-wing uh, political commentators who are of, say, a Christian bent who think evolution is somehow a threat to their religion. It, it isn't. But why would they think that? And the main reason they think that is because it means if evolution is true, we're not moral. We're just selfish and greedy and we're animals. We'll be doing it like they do on the Discovery Channel, as somebody uh, wrote in a song. And uh, this explains a Columbine, for example. Seriously, one of the explanations for the uh, shooting at Columbine was because we're teaching evolution to our kids, right? Well, this is a misunderstanding of evolution. And so I'll, I'll transition then to economics by noting that uh, Jeffrey Skilling's favorite book, Mr. Enron, Jeffrey Skilling's favorite book at the Harvard Business School when he was a student there was Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, which he said, you see, this is evolution, cutthroat, competitive, greed is good, Gordon Gecko, that's capitalism. Well, if that was capitalism, capitalism would have imploded centuries ago. It can't operate that way. The reason it can't operate that way is because it's not in our nature as a social species. Before Adam Smith was uh, famous for The Wealth of Nations, he was a professor of moral philosophy, and his first book was A Theory of Moral Sentiments, in which he stated right there and got right. This was before Darwin, and so he didn't have the mechanism. But that we are, in fact, uh, deeply, intuitively, innately empathetic and sympathetic to our fellow social group members and that a market system and a civil society could not operate if it were not that case. He said we literally put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and feel their pain or feel their pleasure, and this is what we now today call a theory of mind. I know 
that you know, that I know, that you know, and we're back to that again. And so there has to be something like that in order for it to work. So one of the things I'm trying to do in the mind of the market is say, look, it's not – free market economics has been hooked to the wrong theory of evolution, and it isn't like that at all. So I have a chapter co- contrasting Enron with Google and, uh, um, and, and sort of teasing those apart and showing how Enron really is an anomaly. It has to be an anomaly. If most corporations were run like that, uh, the system wouldn't work. M- most corporations are more like Google, which stands out a little bit because it's, it's famous and they give away free food to all their employees and they do all these cool things. Uh, not everybody does that. But the principle of don't be evil is, is I think, really embraced by most uh, businessmen. It's just that that doesn't make the news. Um, okay, now the question is, um, why, should, why should that be? And here's, here's an additional problem to solve from an evolutionary perspective. Um, why should I be cooperative, nice, honest, fair, and just in my dealing with other people? Well, kin selection theory says I will do that to those who I'm related to because they're my kin. And therefore, I am passing my genes along in the next generation uh, by helping somebody who's related to me genetically. Okay, no problem. Uh, Robert Trivers and others figured this out mathematically with uh, social species, especially in the 1970s. Ed Wilson began to try to apply this in, in, his, in the late 70s in his book, Sociobiology, but um, that was uh, disputed by Steve Gould and uh, Dick Lewinton at Harvard, and this became a big culture wars battle that in the long run, uh, Wilson won. Uh, Ed, Ed came out on top on that debate uh, simply because the data supported him. But the theory mutated from sociobiology to evolutionary psychology. So it's an odd thing, really, that uh, Darwin started this whole thing off in the descent to man and, and the expression of the emotions of man, and then it just lied dormant until the 1990s. It really wasn't until just 10 years ago that it became okay to study, use evolutionary models to study human behavior and so evolutionary economics is really sort of the latest version of that. Um, but what about strangers? Well, people that I know pretty well that are not related to me or that I have a lot of uh, interaction with, that, that's explainable by something called reciprocal altruism. I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. But that only works if I can have experience with you to know that you're trustworthy and that you will reciprocate in the long run. The next step beyond that in that expanding circle of sentiments is how, what about strangers in other groups, people that are not related to uh, us and that we don't even know, we have no experience with, that they're complete strangers. The normal natural thing to do if you're a hunter-gatherer when you run into somebody from another tribe is turn and run or kill them. Uh, and that's typically what happens unless something else happens and that something else is reciprocity, a kind of exchange we would say trade in the modern world. But any kind of opportunity you have to interact with somebody in a positive fashion in which I give you something, you give me something, we have some kind of operative exchange, that's a mechanism for breaking down the natural tribal barriers that we evolved and to knock back those xenophobic tendencies where we naturally fear strangers. We know this from a series of research in in, uh, behavioral economics and neuroeconomics, and I'll go through some of those now. So here's a thought experiment for you. Imagine you're walking along a railroad line, and there's a, there's a split in the track, and you're standing there next to the switch. The train is due to, to go down the right track here, and here it comes. You look back, it's hurtling down the track, and it's going to go down the right uh, track here where there's five workers that it will run over and kill. Uh, on the left track, however, is just one worker, and if you throw the switch, the train will go to the left and kill the one worker and save the five, should you throw the switch. 
kill one to save five. So most people uh, who take this little uh, experiment, you can do this at uh, Mark Hauser's webpage at Harvard. You can take the test yourself, see how you do. <laughs> Not exactly a right answer, but anyway. Uh, and, and most people say, yeah, of course I'd throw the switch. Um, okay, second scenario. You're, 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 there's a railroad track, and you're on a bridge over the track. And uh, standing next to you is a large, hefty band. And the train is hurtling down. There's five workers right there on the track. Um, and you have the opportunity to throw the big guy off the bridge. He lands on the track. Smack goes the train. He's killed, but the train stops. The five workers are saved. Would you shove the guy off the bridge? You've got to just actually just give him a hip check or boom. You've got to physically throw him off. Would you do it? Most, almost everybody says no, they would not do it. With a visceral sense that this would, this would really be wrong. Why? It's the same moral calculation, kill one to save five. Why are they different? The reason is that switches and people are categorically different, and evolution explains why. Evolution designed us to value humans over non-humans, kin over non-kin, friends over strangers, in-group members versus out-group members, and direct action over indirect action, because those differences impacted survival and reproduction. These intuitively felt differences in moral intuitions reflect a rational calculation conducted over the evolutionary eons. What may seem like irrational behavior today may actually be, have been rational deep in our Paleolithic past. So when I, what I build on there from my previous book, The Science of Good and Evil, is that um, moral emotions evolved as a proxy for something else. So emotions themselves have a purpose. They, emotions uh, take up brain power. Brains are expensive to run. They, they must be there for a reason. What do emotions do? In a, if we think of the human body as a, as a homeostatic system, which is almost always out of balance on some level, emotions are pushing us, they're motivators to do something to correct the imbalance. So the emotion of hunger, for example, drives the organism to seek uh, calories, to balance the imbalance of, of, um, of not enough calories, right? So hunger is an emotion that drives behavior. That's simple. We get that. Uh, slightly more complex, but still in that realm, is, say, sexual attraction or attractiveness to somebody else. Um, and, and we now have a pretty good handle on, on what it is that other people find, uh, that people find attractive in other people. Uh, women find attractive in men, men that are sort of broad-shouldered with a, that sort of pyramid-shaped, uh, narrower waist, symmetrical faces, clear complexions. Uh, these are proxies for something, for genetic uh, health. And men find in women attractiveness, the hourglass shape, the, again, symmetrical faces, clear complexion, and especially a 0.67 waist-to-hip ratio, 0.67 waist-to-hip ratio. Now, nobody walks into a bar and says, wow, that is a 0.69, close enough for me, uh, doing the calculation of attractiveness. Pretty symmetrical face. Let me put a mirror up there and say... Uh, you don't have to do that calculation because evolution's already done the calculating for us. These are proxies for genetic health. The emotions simply tell us, just like I'm hungry, wow, I have a good feeling about this person. I will walk over there. It's a motivation to, be, to, be, to change behavior, obviously driven to get your genes into the next generation, right? And uh, so if we just keep moving up from that model to higher, let's say higher moral uh, principles. Why not shove somebody off? Well, because uh, a direct, physical, visceral uh, contact with somebody else uh, 
touches on those deep emotional parts of our brain, the amygdala, for example, and uh, cause those to, to light up and, and tell us that would be wrong. Whereas a switch is much more uh, viscerally removed from sort of that ancestral environment. Um, and, and we know this from lots of experiments uh, and getting back to that business of, of um, uh, description as well as prescriptive uh, aspects of the mind of the market. Uh, in another one of these, um, not thought experiments, an actual behavior you can do, there's a game called the ultimatum game that behavioral economists like to employ in which, let's say, um, uh, here's a couple of uh, young men here. Let's say you guys are two starving students uh, at, at my university, and you come into my lab to participate in my experiment. I have 100 bucks. I give you 100 bucks. Now, you have a, uh, an option uh, to uh, make an offer to him. Uh, not an option. You have to make him an offer uh, of, of a split of the $100. If he accepts your offer, you both get to keep the money. If he rejects your offer, I'm taking the money back, and neither of you gets any money at all. Now, what should he offer him as a split? Now, according to Homo economicus, that is, humans are rational calculators, free to choose, and selfish maximizers or utility maximizers. Uh, uh, he should offer him, let's say, a 90-10 split. He gets 10 bucks. I, I'm keeping 90. And, uh, and he should accept it because he's a poor, starving student who just walked in the lab with no money, and he can turn around right now and walk out with 10 bucks. They almost always reject that offer. So an economist would say, this guy is willing to pay $10 to me to punish this bastard for making an unfair offer. They use language like that. Why? Why not take the 10 bucks? It's not fair, damn it. What do you mean it's not fair? Who says it's not fair? There's no law about the ultimatum game, what you must offer. Uh, it's an intuitive, deep sense that uh, something is wrong here. It's not fair. And that sense appears to cross uh, almost all cultures. Uh, it, this, has now been, this research has now been done in uh, uh, cultures, non-Western cultures around the world, and even in uh, hunter-gatherer communities. They don't use cash. So you, have to, you have to use other proxies for what we would call money. Uh, Franz Duval has even found similar results in primates, chimpanzees, which have decent-sized brains, capuchin monkeys, which don't. They have tiny little brains. Uh, chimps are um, uh, directly related to us, maybe split off 6 million years ago, and capuchin monkeys maybe 15 million years ago. So the task is this. You've got uh, two chimps in, in two cages here and uh, separated by a barrier, but they can see each other. And they have two ropes, and they have to pull this platform up from down below. If one of them pulls, the other one doesn't, the platform tips. And on the platform is a, a bucket of, well, th they don't like money, but they like fruit. Nice, fresh, cut fruit on a little bowl of ice. Very delicious, right? So if they both pull it up, the platform comes up, the bucket comes into one of the cages only. And this is going to be an iterated game where they do it over and over and, you know, they haven't eaten since yesterday, so they're motivated. That hunger emotion kicks in. And the question is, what will this one chimp or capuchin monkey do? Will he share or not? When they share, it's iterated over and over, and a good time is had by all, and they're well fed. Uh, when he doesn't share, the other guy refuses to participate. They get upset. They throw things. Uh, it's, it's really quite a, an amusing set of experiments because, uh, although it's a bit of anthropomorphizing, but clearly they're upset. They have no language to say, that was unfair, you bastard. Uh, but they do have a sense, obviously, uh, on some deep level, that there, there was an injustice done. It was wrong to do that. And, um, and so why should that be? And I'm arguing we have an evolved, deep evolved sense of, of right and wrong, and that includes a sense of fairness about exchange. Now, 
when we're talking about uh, modern economies, we think of money and market exchanges and things like that. But let's broaden the idea to an economy is any social environment in which there's kinds of exchanges. It turns out, for example, that when chimpanzees are grooming one another, yes, there's health benefits, right? They pick off the ticks and so on. And there's even sort of a soothing uh, social bonding thing where um, you get a little spike in oxytocin and, and being touched feels good and, and there's a relaxation and so on. But there's a third level in which uh, grooming actually sets up a social relationship and a type of reciprocity. When chimp A grooms chimp B, when chimp B gets in a fight with chimp C, chimp A is more likely to help him. So it's a form of political alliance, this kind of exchange in, a, in this market economy of social chimps uh, a, a form of political alliance to form some um, alliances with maybe the alpha male who's a little bit nasty, but the two of us are better than one, that kind of thing. So that's a form of exchange, and that appears to be... Uh, uh, so the point of the primate research is to say this isn't unique to us, that there's an evolutionary past that goes back at least 15 million years. Um, just uh, There's hundreds of these experiments that I, I summarize in the mind of the market, but, but just one more that um, you can tra- train these capuchin monkeys to exchange uh, pebbles for uh, fruit. So the pebbles become a form of money. And you train them, and you see what their preferences are. You train them to say, like, uh, apple slices cost two stones, uh, and, a, and a banana slice costs three pebbles or whatever. And, and, and then you start, you start a little exchanging when they get hungry. They give you some money, and you give them the fruit, right? So you, you figure out what their preferences are, what they like more, they're willing to pay more for, and so on. And then in the second uh, condition, you simply double the price of one of the fruits to see what happens with the supply and demand curve. And, it, and that supply and demand curve beautifully matches human uh, supply and demand preferences and values, uh, exactly as you would predict mathematically from the amount of the product that's available and the price that it costs. So the, the deeper evolutionary reasons for why we respond in supply and demand uh, situations like that at least goes back 15 million years. So that would be yet another indication that this is how we operate. So, um, and then finally, looking at um, uh, uh, sort of the neuroeconomics of this, uh, two sets of research. One is on uh, uh, neuroeconomics. We actually scan the brains of subjects who are doing these games, the ultimatum game, prisoner's dilemma type games, and you see which areas of the brain are lighting up. turns out that uh, dopamine-rich areas in the brain light up the most when subjects are cooperating, when they're getting a lot of money and a positive exchange going on there. Uh, dopamine is the drug that's the reward drug it's it's associated with addictive uh, behaviors of all kinds gambling and uh, alcohol and especially drugs but it's also associated with uh, sex and and seeing sexy pictures and things like that these dopamine centers light up so cooperation in exchange games between total strangers in the lab generates these brain centers to light up to cause reward pathways to be reinforced in a second set of experiments done by my friend and colleague at Claremont Graduate University, Paul Zach. Uh, Paul is the, uh, well, he's the oxytocin man. It says so right on his license plate. Uh, you know, this is California, right? So we have to signal to everybody what we are. It, well, it's really not we guys. This is a guy thing. Anyway, that's caused by testosterone most likely, but that's a different subject. And... Um, and so what Paul has done is run these experiments, the ultimatum game, the prisoner's dilemma. There's an iterated ultimatum game where you guys go back and forth and, and you keep swapping money for, say, 10 rounds to see how much cooperation goes on. And he draws their blood. 
It, literally. I mean, you're in a lab, and you really got to pay the subjects a lot to get this because it's an uncomfortable thing. But they draw their blood. He measures oxytocin levels, which go up dramatically when the subjects are cooperating and goes down dramatically when they're not. This has to be done very quickly. The half-life of oxytocin is only a few minutes. Oxytocin, remember, is the bonding attachment a hormone that um, uh, nursing mothers have with their infants, but it turns out it, it's, it, it, it goes up with couples uh, in love. It goes up with anybody that's, uh, that's uh, handshake touching one another. Paul actually had subjects get massaged by a professional massage therapist, and they were much more cooperative, made more generous donations. You, you would imagine the ethics committees reading these. Uh, rep- You're going to bring in a massage therapist? Okay. Uh, and, and then finally, uh, to test the, cause, the causal vector, which way is the arrow going? Is oxytocin the cause or the effect of cooperative trade? Uh, and the answer is, uh, it's, it's, uh, if you take a nose spray and you give subjects a shot of oxytocin through a nose spray, it goes right through the b- blood-brain barrier quickly, um, they are much more cooperative, much more generous. So this oxytocin appears to be uh, a, a generator, a social glue, as Zach calls it, uh, for holding society together. Um, so we've gone now from, and, and I'll wrap it up here with reading one final uh, passage here, um, with uh, going back to our, our Yanomamo example, um, with something that I call uh, Bastiat's principle, that is, um, uh, where goods do not cross frontiers, armies will. Um, Bastiat's principle not only helps us understand how hunter-gatherers made the transition to consumer traders, It also illuminates one of the primary causes of conflict, and its corollary elucidates one of the principal steps toward conflict resolution. If Bastiat's principle holds that where goods do not cross frontiers, armies will, then its corollary dictates that where goods do do cross frontiers, armies will not. This is a principle, not a law, uh, since there are exceptions historically and today. Trade will not prevent war, but it attenuates its likelihood. Thinking in terms of probabilities instead of absolutes, trade between groups increases the probability uh, that peaceful and stable relations will continue and decreases the probability that instabilities and conflicts uh, will erupt. So let's return to the Yanomamo people and how they evolved into the Manhattan consumer traders. Um, When missionaries first began working with the Yanomamo, they discovered that if they provided the native peoples with tools for the procurement and production of food and other resources, the amount of Yanomamo intervillage fighting was greatly reduced. The great Yanomamo ethnographer Napoleon Shagdan, who originally gave the Yanomamo their fierce people moniker, his uh, monogram was Yanomamo, the fierce people, uh, he discovered that the Yanomamo are sophisticated traders as well as ferocious warriors because trade creates political alliances. Following the political dictum, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Yanomamo intervillage trade and reciprocal food exchanges serve as a powerful social glue in the creation of political alliances. Village A cannot go to village B and announce that they're worried about being conquered by the more powerful village C, since that would reveal their own weakness. Instead, village A forms an alliance with village B through trade and reciprocal feasting, and as a result, they not only gain military protection but also encourage intervillage peace. As a byproduct of this politically motivated economic exchange, even though each Yanomamo band could produce all the SKUs it needs for survival, they often set up a division of labor and a system of trade. The unintended consequence is an increase in both wealth and products. The Yanomamo trade not because they're innate altruists or nascent capitalists, but because they want to form political alliances. And as Shagnon writes, 
Without these frequent contacts with neighbors, alliances would be much slower in formation and would be even more unstable once formed. A prerequisite to stable alliance is repetitive visiting and feasting, and the trading mechanism serves to bring about these visits. In other words, where Yanomamo, uh, where goods cross Yanomamo frontiers, arm, Yanomamo armies do not cross frontiers. And that's, I think, a principle we can extrapolate out. Um, and the reason for it is this deep evolutionary sense of somehow breaking down these natural, tribal, xenophobic barriers we have and what I would say, the Googlefication and Starbucksification and open trade between countries is absolutely the best and only way to, at, at its deepest level, get past those natural xenophobic barriers. Thank you. All right, before we break for lunch and book signing, we'll take questions. There will be microphones brought to you. Please wait for the microphone and please have a question. Where are the microphones? There they are. Michael, you want to call on? Oh, sure. Uh, let's see. Have, well, we can start off down here, I guess. You want to bring the mic down here? What is your opinion of the NAFTA and CAFTA arrangements? Uh, well, um, I mean, I don't, I don't follow those things that closely, but any kind of arrangements in which we can have greater free trade between peoples is a good thing. Uh, I'm from California, so um, one solution to the uh, immigration problem, and I'm amazed that this has become a political issue. Uh, we've had Mexicans pouring into California since I was born in the 50s. I don't know why this became suddenly became a thing. It's always been there. And, and simply market forces have always dealt with it. Um, so I would say open the borders and open trade. Uh, in this sense, uh, for example, when I need to – I have a, a big hillside that has to be cleared because I live in fire country. So the fire department requires us to clear it every year, and I would do it anyway because that's what causes your house, houses to burn down. right? So I just go down to the local Home Depot, and they're just out there waiting. Uh, but there's this kind of a sense like I'm doing something wrong or whatever, but they want to do it. I want to pay them. I don't care whether they send the money back. What do I care? I mean, I got the, I got the job done and so on. If – there were too many of them, and usually there are. Uh, the market would simply send a lot of them back because they can't find work if there's too many already weed whacking or whatever it is they're doing in, in California there. So I would say that is a model for expanding, in principle, uh, opening up those uh, trades. The market would determine how many immigrants are coming in. While you're standing there, might as well get this one and then we'll go up there. Oh, you want to do one up there? Okay, good. No, no, we'll just go ahead and start here and then okay. move the microphone there. rule. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. Could this be a bottom-up evolutionary survival morality? Yes, the, the golden rule is reciprocal altruism. I, I mean, it is a, a form of reciprocity that uh, is practiced by all social animals. So it's the first principle. Well, that's what the great Rabbi um, Hillel said uh, uh, when asked about, you know, interpreting the Bible and all the 400 laws and all that, he said, uh, uh, basically, do unto others, and all the rest is commentary. And that's right. Uh, and that really begins at just basic primate social behavior, and, and that's what we are. So that's why I claim uh, that we are innately moral. Uh, to, to, to theists who say you can't be good without God, uh, I say, well, thank, thanks for the warning in case you don't stop believing. Uh, but, uh, but that, in fact, no, of course, we all are moral. 
And, uh, and that uh, the morality evolved first. See, what happened was about five to 7,000 years ago, all those informal means of behavior control, like reciprocity, reciprocal altruism, and all that, uh, only works in small groups. Once populations are in the tens and hundreds of thousands, you need some sort of codified set of rules. So we had two institutions evolve, government and religion. Um, Bert Ely from here in the Washington area. Um, on page uh, 20 in the introduction, uh, you talk about uh, you now disagree with Rand's ethics of self-interest. Um, I wonder if you could expand upon that uh, a, a little bit and uh, go into a little bit to what extent uh, you're trying to have any influence on the Randians in terms of trying to help uh, them move past where Rand was more in line with what uh, uh, your own thinking is. Well, I'm not trying to move anybody anywhere. I'm just a scientist saying this is the way it is, and uh, we can uh, adjust our political preferences and commitments based on that. Uh, I mean, most of Rand's philosophy, I think, is is correct, terrific, uh, you know, objectivism and so on. Uh, But but the idea that um, we're just just selfish beings, I think, misses the better half. I'm not sure what she would say about that. Uh, Ed Hudgens here can uh, cl- clarify, I'm sure, uh, uh, and the, in the social hour afterwards. But um, but that, I think, again, goes – I think one of the objections people have to objectivism is that, oh, it's that selfish, greedy philosophy, and I, I kind of don't feel good about that. And so there's another way to say, no, but actually capitalism is incredibly moral. Markets have to be moral. If they weren't moral, it would never work. So it, it this – this is an exercise in consciousness raising. I'm trying to raise everybody's consciousness to say this is the most moral system ever developed. So instead of saying it's the opposite, let's just keep saying it, and eventually we'll get it. Uh, here. David, David Bernstein, George Mason University Law School. I'm a subscriber to Skeptic and a big fan, and I recommend it to uh, the audience. Uh, I've also read a couple of your books. And one thing I get out of that, as well as other things I've read, is that people have all sorts of reasons for believing what they believe about the world, but reason is often, reason, logic, et cetera, is often not one of them. Symbols and emotion, all that. So for those of us who deal in ideas, that would include yourself, David, running a think tank, and myself being a law professor. How much, are, how much effect could just rational argument have? What percentage of people are actually ultimately susceptible to reason? Why are there some differences? Why are some people skeptics yes. and some people are the opposite? And is that a function actually of our, wh- who we were born from and what genes we've inherited? Or is it how we were educated? And if the school system taught reason, people would be more reasonable. Well, hopefully. We like to think education makes a difference. Uh, and by the way, you asked about this uh, skeptic magazine. Uh, I passed around a clipboard there if you want to put your – uh, e- email address on there. That's for the uh, electronic version of Skeptic Magazine. It goes out every week. It's free. Anyway, so uh, obviously I, if I wouldn't be in that business if I didn't think it matters. I mean, we teach critical thinking and reason and rationality, and and uh, and, and fortunately our brains are very pliable and, and capable of learning. So yeah, naturally we we hope that makes a difference. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, I have job security because we'll never uh, solve the problem because our brains are designed by evolution to learn, uh, called association learning. A is connected to B, and oftentimes A really is connected to B in some causal way. Uh, what we don't have is a baloney detection module in our brain 
to pick out those false positives where A looks like it's connected to B, but in fact it's not, which is why places like Las Vegas are so successful. Uh, and, uh, and so we're up against that and always will be. That's the, the intuitive problem I said with understanding things like long-term global change or long-term uh, climate or uh, like civilization changes or economic changes, that we just can't get our minds around those. So that, that's a problem. Uh, and it, uh, uh, on an economic level, we're pretty irrational. As I mentioned, those three aspects of homo economicus, that we're rational, free, and, and max, uh, s- selfishly maximizing, that those, are all, uh, debunk- those are all bunk. That myth has been debunked. And uh, so uh, things like the ultimatum game is an example of that. That's an irrational thing. Or if I give you an offer of a, like a choice. So you walk into a store, and there's uh, the widget you want to buy, an iPod or something. It's 100 bucks, And I tell you, look, four blocks down the street, it's uh, only 50 bucks. Would you, would you walk down and get it? Almost everybody says, well, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, four blocks, 50 bucks, it's half off. I'll do it. Uh, second scenario, you're in the same store. You're going to buy that plasma TV. It's 1000 bucks, And I say, hey, look, four blocks away, it's only $950. You're going to go get it? Almost everybody says, oh, 50 bucks. I mean, it's the same $50. Uh, but it's framed uh, in a different scenario. So this is called the framing effect. There's about 20 different of these cognitive biases that uh, influence an emotional level what we value financially. And so that, that makes it anything but rational. Michael, I'd like to ask a follow-up to that. I wonder if you've read the book by Brian Kaplan, The Myth of the Rational Voter, and how that affects how rational are people, and are they less rational when they vote than when they operate their own lives? Yeah, I haven't read that book, but... Um, I think that's probably right. I mean, we're 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 a social primate species, so we very much uh, move in herds. We like being in groups. It's important for us to be in groups, and and we like our alpha males. So, I mean, that just all sort of fits. Uh, the research I've seen on this is once you make a commitment to a position, then the confirmation bias kicks in, and you justify uh, all, uh, the reasons for your commitment to that particular position. And it's the far, the farther down the road you go, the harder it is to to, to change that because you've accumulated a lot of evidence in favor of the position you're at, uh, whether it's real or not, is sort of irrelevant. Uh, I did like uh, there's a book called The Political Brain. Um, Drew Weston is a neuroscientist at Emory, and uh, and so his argument is that he's a Democrat. He, he's a liberal, and he advises Democratic uh, candidacies. And he says, "You guys, Democrats, we we Democrats," he says, "I've made a big mistake thinking we can reason and rationalize our way to the voters' brains." He said, "Forget the brains. Go for the heart. Go for the forget the prefrontal cortex. Go for the amygdala." You know, fear, the terrorists are coming. And, you know, that's the level that most brains operate in. Up till now, the Democrats have been operating on reason? Well, this is what he thinks. (laughs) It's a good point. Uh, Here we go, this woman here. Um, I'm Deborah Wood Smith, the president of the Council on Competitiveness. I loved your talk. It was fantastic. Thank Thank you. you. Um, I have a question. You didn't talk at all. Um, about the gender differences. And if you look at some of the great historical trading nations from the Egyptians, the Vikings, women had a very interesting, prominent role in society. You can think of the English. Um, how, how would you factor in this openness, this reciprocity, and how females have been treated and empowered throughout history, and how does that have a genetic basis in what you're talking about? Interesting question. I haven't given that that much thought 
Uh, in some of these game theory models, the women tend to be more trusting initially, and they cooperate and give more than men. The, the idea is that testosterone makes you um, a, a little more skeptical of other people's trustworthiness until it's proven. Um, in Zach's research, he, fa- he finds that about 2 to 3% of his subjects uh, respond not at all to oxytocin. I mean, you could give them a bucket full of it. And he calls them the bastards. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and this happens to also be the percentage of sociopaths in society. It's possible that there's just a percentage of the population. If you have a law of large numbers, you have enough people, you're going to get some outliers that are six standard deviations out, and they just respond to nothing in the same way that the rest of us do. And, uh, but, but Paul has an interesting twist on this that uh, I talk about in the book and that we worked on a little bit, that uh, maybe the bastards, I call them Zach's bastards, maybe they're the ones that keep us... Uh, the rest of us sort of finely tuned in our moral uh, calculations because they keep us on our toes. You can't be too trustworthy. So it requires more signals of trust, so more social institutions that enable those trust signals to be sent so you can tell the difference between the the bastards and everybody else. That would probably be something like that. Uh, Here we go. Um, Eric Verkirke with NPR. Um, part of what you seem to be saying is that seemingly irrational behaviors often have evolutionary rationales behind them. And so I guess I'm wondering where the line between descriptive and prescriptive is that you mentioned it at the beginning. Yes, good question. I don't really have a line. I think it's a fuzzy boundary uh, in which uh, I don't fully accept the whole, um, you know, you can't do a ought from an is and and the, you know, the naturalistic fallacy, I don't fully accept that. I think in this age, it's okay to at least apply science to the extent that you can to try to resolve moral conflicts uh, on two levels. One, uh, we have to apply science to understand why people are moral. But then the next question is, is what's the moral, actual right moral decision to make? Um, and, uh, you know, philosophers have had, and theologians have had free reign on this question for 4,000 years. And as Ed Wilson said at the end of sociobiology, it's time to take it away. <laughs> well, you don't have to take it away from them, but scientists have something to say about this. And um, this is what my, uh, my friend, my, my literary agent, John Brockman, calls the third culture. And John has kind of created this environment of, of science books, science books that are not technical books. They're not popular books. They're what I call integrative science books. They're, they're integrating lots of new areas of science in a new and creative way by professional scientists. Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel is the classic case of this, I think. That's not the popular version of Jared's original research. It's the only version there is. And, uh, and to that extent, I think um, it's okay for scientists to jump in there and say, I think this is the right moral decision based on this evidence. And they may be wrong, but at least there's another voice in the Another voice in the conversation. Thanks, Ed Hudgens, Atlas Society. By the way, the good news is that uh, objectivism doesn't contradict anything you said. So, Okay, good. But anyway, uh, but my question concerns your definition of being rational and being a skeptic and being moral. Uh, you, of course, would say as a skeptic that we should uh, examine rationally any kind of claims, you know, about UFOs or whatever it happens to be. Uh, you also point out correctly that our capacities have evolved. For example, our capacity tastes for certain kind of foods. Uh, so therefore, I have a taste for sweet foods and fat, and I could eat a whole lot of them. But as a self-conscious person, I also recognize that if I give in to that particular urge, 
uh, there are going to be adverse effects. Therefore, I constrain that evolutionary capacity. And the same thing for a whole lot of other capacities. Would you say that part of being a skeptic, part of being rational, and part of being moral is to pull back and exercise that thing that is called self-consciousness, free will, whatever label you want to put on it, and to say, how is this going to maximize my enjoyment, pleasure, and I would say higher, uh, uh, you know, uh, happiness in life? Is that part of what it is to be a skeptic and what it is to be moral? Uh, Absolutely. As Catherine Hepburn said to Humphrey Bogart and the African Queen, nature, Mr. Alnut, is what we were put on this earth to rise above. (laughs) Yep, it's a great question. Uh, We're back here, it looks like, maybe. Uh, Or here's one we haven't heard from over here, either of those two. Hi, Evan Creed. Um, You mentioned that based on your evolutionary theory of capitalism that Enron's the exception rather than the rule. Is it possible that a certain proportion of corporations in the free market will try to take advantage based on evolutionarily stable strategies that a certain, most will go by the rule of law, but inevitably someone will come along and try to take advantage of that? Yes, of course. Absolutely. And it's a good point to make. And, and the same model would apply to athletes who dope. So I just finished this big article, uh, cover story for Scientific American that will come out in uh, the uh, April issue in time for opening day of baseball, uh, in which I applied a game theory model to this. And it's the same principle as it would be for, for corporations or CEOs or anybody else. It is you have a game with a set of rules and boundaries, and the rules have to be enforced. If they're not, then once defection begins, especially at the top, the closest competitors have to also defect. If, the say, in this case, the, the drugs make a difference, and boy, they really do make a difference now. Back in the 50s and 60s when uh, athletes began doping, uh, it was questionable about whether those drugs actually made a performance difference or not. Now they have it down to a science, and it, they, they make like 10 to 20 percent difference. You have to do it. And if the system itself doesn't enforce the rules, then, uh, then defection will become the rule. And, and that's what's happened in sports. That's what would happen, possibly, if there weren't some system in which uh, a market operated, some kind of a sort of a liberal democracy with a rule of law and, and uh, court systems and a fair and free, uh, f- a fair justice system and, and things like that, that, the kinds of rules we put down. I think, say, maybe environmentally, we as a society decide, here's how much carbon we want to allow into the environment every year. And then uh, now it's up to you guys to free trade, uh, uh, you know, carbon credits and so on and let the market figure that out. I think that's a nice solution to that. And so, you know, some, something along those lines. Let's take two more questions. There's a couple in the back. There's a woman in the back there and then a gentleman in the back. Oh, we have somebody up front here. Crystal Chavez from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for talking tonight, um, today. Um, will liberals ever learn or evolve to embrace capitalism? Because obviously it works, <laughs> and they're not understanding the mechanisms of it and still are hindering you know, our progress. Will liberals ever learn? Well, <laughs> you just stopped the question right there. <laughs> That's too funny. Uh, well, sure. I mean, uh, uh, you know, they're people, and, uh, and like anybody else, you know, they, they want peace, prosperity, and freedom, and so on. So it's really there, uh, back to our uh, question about education. Yes, of course, w- hopefully we can uh, basically raise everybody's consciousness to realize that markets are moral, 
and that uh, free markets are an effective way at, at uh, providing justice and fairness to more people and more wealth and more prosperity and so on. And, and uh, that's part of the reason I wrote The Mind of the Market. But other people are doing this, think tanks like Cato, Reason, and so on. Uh, and it's, it's really a culture war in a sense. And, uh, and raising consciousness is what you do in a culture war by just saying it enough and providing cogent arguments in favor of it. Uh, we had this gentleman right here, and then that'll be our last one. And then we could talk afterwards uh, at lunch, too. I'm glad you mentioned culture. Since up to this point, there is no – everyone talked about the Western point of view, not the Asian point of view. I'm from China originally. And I, if I may say so, your, your analysis is coated with the so-called alliance, but basically it is – domination. You're not re you talk about sharing and you even using a very simple example, ten ten breaking a hundred dollar bill into ten ninety is not sharing in a sense. It's domination. You know, you try to dominate people. And in the Chinese point of view, what why don't you do simply Live and let live, and let them decide on for themselves without your intervention and eventually domination. Well, I, I guess I wouldn't disagree with you. If we have a free society with free markets, people will decide for themselves. And if you don't want to participate in some sort of economic exchange game, well, then don't. Uh, you don't have to. Uh, nobody has to do anything. Uh, it's only when you start intervening into the rules too much that then, then you end up with uh, domination, uh, things like the, uh, dominating attempts and co colonialism and things like that. It's that zero-sum model that most of the Paleolithic environment actually is uh, that leads to things like mercantilism and tribalism in, in, the, in the market forces. It, once you take that out then you don't really have to worry about things like domination. Anyway, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, David. Thank you, Cato Institute. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. We're delighted to have you here again at the Cato Institute, and we invite everybody to join us upstairs for lunch and buying books.